0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the State of Health, the podcast where patients put healthcare decision makers and thought leaders in the hot seat. I'm Gunnar Esiason. Patient engagement is more than a buzzword for career and lifelong patients like myself. I've always said that patients are wrongly seen as the implicit benefactors of the healthcare system. Today on the State of Health, we talk to an entrepreneur who is trying to change that. Jen Horn Jeff is the founder and CEO of Savvy Cooperative, the first and only patient-owned public benefit co-op that helps healthcare companies connect directly with diverse patients in order to get the insights they need to build better and more inclusive innovations. Jen was named one of the 50 most daring entrepreneurs of 2018 by Entrepreneur Magazine, alongside the likes of Elon Musk, Chance the Rapper, and Reese Witherspoon, for her application of the cooperative model. Savvy has additionally won seven awards and has been featured in Fast Company and the Boston Globe. Jen grew up with juvenile idiopathic arthritis and survived a brain tumor as an adult. She is also a healthcare outcomes researcher at Columbia University Medical Center, a human factors engineer, and an FDA consumer representative. Jen earned her master's in ergonomics and biomechanics and a PhD in environmental medicine, both from New York University. Let's talk about the state of patient engagement. Jen, thanks for coming on the show.
1: My pleasure, thanks for having me.
0: So why don't we just get right into it. What is the Savvy Co-op and why a cooperative?
1: So Savvy is actually the first and only patient-owned public benefit co-op And what that actually means is that we are collectively owned by patients, which is different from being a traditional corporation, but it's also different from your typical 501c3 nonprofit charity. A co-op is a member-owned organization. And for us, as patients ourselves, we wanted to make sure that patients had ownership in the organization that we were creating. And so that's why we are a cooperative.
0: How many members are there?
1: So we have hundreds of members. I don't actually have the number in front of me, um, but yes, it's, it's very exciting. And, and the whole point of that is that while we have hundreds upon hundreds of members, it allows us to then leverage their networks. And so our network is, you know, hundreds of thousands of people because of this model where we're not trying to reinvent the wheel and create new patient communities. Like, look, patient communities have been around forever. And since we work across all different conditions, we're not going to pretend to be the experts in all of those things. So we don't. And instead, we allow our members to be said experts and to reach out to their communities in culturally sensitive ways and the and with appropriate language and knowing their community best. So it's been a both something that we think is important to us and how we operate as a business, but it also just helps us be a better business.
0: Now, can you share a little bit about what a member might do for the cooperative? You know, what what is the uh, responsibilities for a member um, and why might they want to be a part of the Savvy Co-op?
1: Absolutely. Well, first, let me back up and say what the heck we do. So at Savvy Cooperative, we help to connect companies and innovators and researchers directly with diverse patients and caregivers across all conditions. And so what that means in practice is when a company has, um, you know, a need to talk to 20 MS patients because they want to develop a new app for people with MS or they're looking for 50 people with type two diabetes to test out a new, um, you know, app or they're trying to understand what are the kind of support services they need, all of this kind of stuff. They come to us and they say, here's what we need. And then our members are alerted of these opportunities and they can apply to participate. But the real cool part is even if they don't qualify or, you know, it's not a condition that they have themselves, they can share these opportunities. And that's sort of like the magic of our cooperative is that they are rewarded financially for sharing these opportunities and bringing in new diverse voices. And so for us, we think about sort of like the contributions to the co-op and that is participating in these projects, which we call gigs, or referring people. But there can be other things as we roll out sort of our savvy ambassador program, being an ambassador for us, um, continuing to you know do things like blogging or other ways that we can consider like contributing. And it's just important to us that people are valued fairly for their time and expertise. And so that's what we set out to do.
0: So the, the thing that I love so much about the savvy co-op is in the healthcare world, I often find that industry seeks patients with an anticipation that there will be some sort of altruistic uh, motivation for the patient in getting involved in whatever you know, the sponsor may be, whether it's a pharmaceutical company or a payer or a hospital or something. It, it always seems like there's uh, an altruistic motivation that is uh, and certainly just, I guess, uh, demanded in some ways of patients. Why Why is that? And do you sense that as well? And is, finally, is the savvy co-op trying to fill that gap?
1: Look, altruism is great. And it's a huge motivator for why people contribute to research and things like this. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't also have value and a financial value. That's what I think people miss. And the easiest way for me to try to get people to understand why it's so important to financially value people's time and expertise is it's a real diversity issue. If we don't compensate people, then you will only get people who can afford to participate for free. And that's really sort of like the story of Savvy, right? Is that I was being asked to sort of be that patient voice on this project and that committee, and that was all well and good, but First of all, I was already working in the industry. So I already had a seat at the table. So I didn't necessarily need the same financial compensation. I was also a consultant. So I had flexibility around my schedule. I wasn't taking time off from a a retail job to come and give my expertise. And so that's where people need to understand, like uh, for years I've had you know researchers be like, oh, well we don't get compensated. So why would they? Well, yeah, because this is part of your professional responsibilities. This is how you're gonna go get tenure. It's gonna show up on your CV. Somebody who's you know working at TJ Maxx is not going to be able to leverage this in a professional way. So there has to be that value exchange. And so that's what I really want people to understand is that it, it does have value. And when we think about how it contributes to for-profit companies, if you are a patient and you're giving valuable insights to help a for-profit pharmaceutical company figure out how to improve their drug or improve marketing for their drug, you bet your bottom dollar that they should be compensated. And in the industry, of course, there's what's known as fair market value. So it's not like anybody's kicking back and retiring on being a patient and sharing their insights. But it's about trying to figure out ways that they can just be justly and equitably compensated for when they do contribute.
0: Yeah, I I think that is just an absolutely great way of putting it. it. There's no secret that the healthcare industry is flush with cash. And I have always seen the irony in seeking like just crazy volunteer work for places that simply just don't need volunteers <laughs> or yeah. can, can afford more than just a volunteer. Um, so I, I, I appreciate the mission here. The state of health will be right back with Jen Horn. jeff Is there one part of the industry that excels in working with patients? And is there one that falls short?
1: You know, it's interesting because I see that there is more pressure on, say, the pharmaceutical space to do the work. I think they kind of are bumbling a little bit with knowing how to do it. And this is sort of the story, right? Like people have been talking about patient centricity for the past decade. And so like the sort of grace period is over and now it's like, okay, prove it. And so helping people understand how to do the work. So that's coming around. Where I see people who sort of understand like the value of getting input is really coming from the tech space. So these sort of incumbents that are coming into technology or those people who that's their, their background in training, they know that like when you develop something, of course you're gonna go and iterate and get that constant sort of feedback loop from individuals. But where they need help is understanding the, complex multi-stakeholder system that is healthcare. It's not as easy as just a traditional consumer market. So they need a little bit of help. An area that I find like really a little bit more challenged with this is health systems and payers. They assume that because they have close, you don't see my air quotes here, the close proximity to patients because they naturally have them in their database, that they are getting diverse input but that is not always the case. And of course, they don't necessarily even know how to get the right insights from individuals. So that's where I think they fall into this trap of being like, oh, well, you know, we send out our like HCAP survey or something. So we'll be fine. And it's like, no. So th- I see, you know, pros and cons to different spaces, but hopefully we will all start to kind of learn from each other and move in the right direction.
0: You know, the health system example is an interesting one. Um, and I personally find it an interesting one because I, I gave a lecture at uh, Dartmouth College's Master of Healthcare Delivery Science uh, program last summer, and it's a program for mid-career folks who are like doing an executive education sort of deal. Um, and a question came to me after after my lecture from someone who was uh, you know higher up at a at a at some healthcare system, and he said, you know, the patient advisory boards that we're creating are very weirdly skewed to folks who have had a bad experience with our institution, how can we get out there and engage the right kind of people? And my question was, was, are you paying these people to give you the feedback that your institution needs to be successful? And I'm sure you can imagine what the the answer to that question was. So I, I wonder, Jen, how does the culture change?
1: I think that, you know, in a health system scenario, a lot of them do rely on the PFACs, the patient family advisory committees, which of course is a very limited subset of patients that would be utilizing a whole health system. And again, there's uh, health inequities and disparities baked into being part of a PFAC that is probably meeting, you know, once a month on a Tuesday afternoon where not everybody can then go in. I know that not all of us are doing in person right now, but traditionally, like that's the way it was. And who's got time to take that you know tuesday afternoon meeting so i think what i want people to take away is that it's not that there's any one perfect way to engage patients it's an iterative process and you should be able to reflect on every time that you do and then improve upon it and so that's what great start with a pfac or whatever it might be but i think especially in a health system situation is it's not just the people who had a bad experience or people on this pfac but like what about the people outside of your health system why aren't they using you? Don't you want to go talk to them and figure out what is it? Do they not feel welcomed? Was it too hard to make an appointment? Do they feel like there's you know, historical injustices that have happened at that system that perhaps make them less you know, excited about going there? So there's all sorts of things, but it takes going out and talking to the community to find it out.
0: So I, I see on the back of your, your wall back there, you've got a sign up that says, ask patients, ask patients. Is, uh, is that what you're going for?
1: <laughs> is that an important message to me? Yes, it is. A little subliminal messaging when I'm talking to people all day long. I mean, that's that's the drum I beat from the minute I wake up to the moment I hit the pillow is just trying to get people to understand. It's really that simple. It's just asking patients, but you know, the caveat being of course asking the right patients at the right time so that we can really get targeted feedback.
0: So on that tune, I was looking at your website the other day, and I saw a blog that you wrote that uh, uh, sort of touched on a, a saying that is oft used in the healthcare world, we are all patients. And I will say, I had never heard it before I started my public health program. And my, part of my, uh, my classmates, a part of the cohort my my class is people who are either in medical school, getting an MPH as well, or folks who are going to apply to medical school in the coming years. And then the first time I ever heard coming from someone who is like being trained to be a physician is well, we're all gonna be patients one day and we can understand what it means to be a career patient. And I took objection to that. And I will say my favorite thing about case-based learning is that the classes are built to have disagreements. So of course my very loud self spoke up but the way you talked about it on your blog, Uh, was a different take. And I'd love for you to share with our listeners what you wrote about.
1: Yeah. And thanks for that feedback. I think somebody who has also been living with chronic illness essentially since birth, it's something that I've heard for years and years about, you know, we are all patients, but you and I have never known life as not a patient. And so it's very different than if you, you know, tore your ACL or you, you know, had a hard time signing up for health insurance or something like this is our every single day. And so what I think is really important for people to take away is that there are nuances to understanding this. And what I was talking about in the blog is that, great, if you are on board with helping patients, we want that. And people generally say it to try to galvanize and try to make us all care about this. But I'm trying to call out to people that for those of us who are living as a patient every day, it's somewhat dismissive of the experiences that we have on an ongoing basis. And I liken it to people who are saying all lives matter in light of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I know many well-meaning people that said that not out of trying to say that black lives don't matter, but they just the naivete there when they would say, oh, well, everyone's life matters. But the point of black lives matter is to be able to call out the injustices that happen to this specific group of individuals that needs to be remedied, right? Like all lives will matter when black lives matter. And so when we talk about we are all patients, yes, it is possible that you could be a patient someday, but you do not know the experiences of those of us who are living day to day. I also don't know your experiences as a CF patient. I'm not going to pretend to know that. I'm just saying I know my experiences and I don't want to be silenced because, you know, somebody within a company says, oh, someday I could be a patient. So I'm going to speak on behalf of you. No. No. And so that's really what I was trying to get people to understand.
0: Now, I've always said that there's no greater expert in a specific condition than somebody living with that chronic disease. Uh, and that's not to diminish the role that anyone else plays in the entire healthcare ecosystem. It's just the, the simple fact that when I go to bed at night and then wake up in the, the next morning, I still have cystic fibrosis. And that's just the way it's going to be 365 days out of the year. So in that tune, I I do say that patients are the most underutilized resource in healthcare. And who across the entire healthcare ecosystem possesses the power to deploy us with the most positive disruptive effect?
1: You know, I get caught up when I think about like the underutilized and the, you know, deploy because I want people to understand that patients are people and they are valuable and we're not just your little, you know, toy soldiers to go, you know, flip around. And so just thinking about, okay, how can we partner with patients in a way that is equitable to make sure that we can collaborate? And that's what, like, my biggest takeaway for people is, look, this should not be threatening to say that patients have expertise that you don't have. Like, you don't want to have our experiences. Like, you don't want to know what we've gone through, but that's okay, like you don't have to. And that's why like, if you have a well-rounded research team, right? You're going to have a subject matter expert, you're going to have statisticians, you're going to have epidemiologists. If you're working in pharma, you've got people that are, you know, experienced with drug development. You may have designers coming in for other projects. So just think of it as a unique stakeholder that you need to round out that type of expertise. And so that's what I think that everybody who is interested in doing more patient-centered innovation needs to know that, you know, there are patients here and, you know, organizations like Savvy Cooperative are here to help inform how you work with them and helping you connect with the right people at the right time.
0: So interesting you talk about stakeholders and I I have sensed that stakeholder engagement in some parts of the industry and some of my, my back experiences is is tantamount to appeasement in a lot of ways. It's just like checking off a box. Oh, well, we've engaged the patients here. They are on this research project that we're rolling out. Or, I mean, I've gone in enough clinical trials to know that at no point was a patient ever consulted in what a page or what a trial design looks like. You know, I I think back to a few years ago and I was given like an at-home monitor, which I am all for home reported outcomes and home reported health outcomes and, and home reported health monitoring rather um but to know that I was asked to do something it's just simply not going to change day to day or maybe deter me from even sticking to the to the protocol uh it's very easy to see when a patient is not used properly what is the best way to overcome that appeasement piece of just checking off the box
1: oh yeah, there's so much tokenism that exists, right? You know, it's like, we, we yes, we talked to a patient. We work with a lot of pharma companies and we were working with one to actually review some of the patient engagement work that they had done. And they had created a scoring rubric of, you know, how they talk to patients, all this kind of stuff. But they neglected to put down and have the different teams report how many patients and how they did it. It was literally, did you talk to patients? It's like, okay, was it one person, one time? Was it going out to a large sample? Was it in depth interviews? Was it, you know, one sort of survey that who knows the quality of it? And so that's where, yeah, you can't just be like, yay, pat on the back. I have talked to a patient, which is what people have traditionally done. But when it comes to how to do it, again, not to like toot Savvy's horn here, there are other organizations that could help, but you have to work with people that know how to do it. And this is, I think, really important because what what actually I have seen firsthand as when I started Savvy, I thought we were just going to do matchmaking, like helping to connect companies with those patients. I come from academia and am a qualitative researcher by training. And I thought, no, that's not what people need, but I was wrong. (laughs) What they do, the problem is, is that when people would come and say, yeah, I need to talk to some patients, they would then do garbage research. They would ask patients yes or no questions. That's not how you get insightful, robust insights into what it's like to live as a patient. And so the the downside of that and the cautionary tale is that if you're doing Cruddy research, you're going to get cruddy results. And then what happens is you think that patients aren't valuable. And so it's really making sure that you're working with people who are skilled at doing the work and understanding the right methodology if you want to have good outcomes.
0: We're going to take a quick break. The state of health will be back in a moment. You know, it's, it almost sounds uh, like I- ironic, I guess, that you would say this because the healthcare industry is such an academia led world that to, to get to the, the very top, you have to go through the technical hurdles of, you know, this degree and that degree and 20 years of experience doing this work to get to the top and be the one rolling out the cardiac research feels like it's counterintuitive to the success of whatever's trying to be done. And, and it, I do actually look to the pharmaceutical industry uh, industry as a case study for when patient engagement really, really works. And it's great. And those companies are in the community and working with folks to when it really looks terrible. <laughs> and you can absolutely tell when a pharmaceutical company just does not have it prioritized. Uh, and it, the, the results are nothing but disastrous.
1: Yeah. I mean, I see it firsthand. Sometimes when I give presentations, I joke with the audience that they can come up to me afterwards and I'll tell them where on a spectrum, their company falls on what I consider to be those who are like innovation forward and those that are more innovation proof. And what I mean by that is like, look, we work with the big pharma companies and I can tell you how they approach things and that some of them are like, yes, let's do it. You know, whatever we got to do. And if we Make a misstep, then we'll figure it out. versus those that are like, "Oh no, 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 talking to patients is too risky, too scary. They're not valuable. You know, we'll just ask HCPs instead. So there's the whole spectrum, and certainly we see more progress happening from those that are on the innovation forward side of things.
0: What does s- success look like for the SaDI co-op?
1: I think from what I would like to see is again, this this constant cycle of coming back to patients. It's important for multiple reasons. Number one is what we just talked about, right? from like a tokenistic standpoint, like one cross-section in time of having patients weigh in is not going to be successful. And look, like altruism and all these like fluffy terms that people use, like I don't have a problem talking about the bottom line. You will go make more money if you make a better product for patients. And so it should be in everyone's best interest to do the work to get there. And I think it's just trying to get people to see that not only should they follow up with patients to get more insights, but they should also follow up to tell them how their insights made a difference. And that's mm-hmm. something that we care about at Savvy also is, okay, so you participated in you know, an in-depth interview or a survey, or you gave feedback on this clinical trial protocol. So what, what did that company do? Like patients are always just giving, 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 giving their insights, giving their data and clinical trials and all of this. And they never hear about it, right? Like we hear about that in clinical trials all the time. You participated, you put your body on the line and then you're like, wait, what happened? Did they ever move forward with it? Did they ever publish that research? Am I ever going to get told about it? So, we want to close this feedback loop because it, it makes you feel really good as a patient to know that you contributed. And that's, you know, if I nerd out here for a second from the research side, there's actually research that shows us that having an improved self con- concept helps to decrease healthcare utilization and improve outcomes. And so if we can give patients a way to take their cruddy experiences of being a patient and turn it into something positive, it can really have a great impact on patients. And it's the least that we can do.
0: You know, I want to thank you ahead of time for uh, linking us back to an episode that we did last month with Bob Coughlin from Massachusetts Bio, where we were talking about what happens to data after a patient completes a clinical trial. And why doesn't the patient have access to that data? So our, our listeners, if you haven't heard that episode, definitely go back and check it out because we have touched on it. And it certainly is a hot button issue in the, uh, in the patient advocacy world. Well, Jen, thanks for, thanks for coming on the podcast. This was really awesome and I hope to have you back again uh, real soon.
1: My pleasure, anytime.
0: That's all for this week. Be sure to join us next week. New episodes come out every Wednesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at G17 Esiason. You can check out my website at Gunnar If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe and then leave a review and a rating. A big thank you to Jen Hornjeff and the Savvy Cooperative. Throw Jen a follow on Twitter at Hornjeff. Check out the Savvy on the web at www.savvy.coop. The State of Health is produced by Bob Dwyer. Thanks to Odyssey for making this podcast possible. We'll see you next week.